welcome to this episode in the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Rob Garrett. I'm a former member of the RAN's communication branch, currently working within the Naval History section of the Sea Power Centre Australia. This is the second of two episodes which focus on the Navy's important role in protecting merchant shipping. Last week, we looked at very much the big picture when we discussed Australia's contribution to the Battle of the Atlantic. This week, we recall the March 1942 heroic defence of a single small convoy in the Indian Ocean by the sloop HMAS Yarra. Some listeners will recall last year's podcast on the Navy in the Persian Gulf in 1941, which discussed Yarra's earlier exploits, which I commend to you. To tell this story about HMAS Yarra and her men's devotion to duty, I am joined by Dr. Mark Bailey, whose doctoral thesis is on the strategic and trade protection implications of Anglo-Australian maritime trade, 1885 to 1942. Mark joined the Navy in 1979 and served on the sloop Yarra's namesake, the Frigate Yarra, in the early 80s. He went on to specialise in intelligence and trade protection and continues to serve in the Navy on a part-time basis, as well as being a member of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. I am also joined by Dr Tom Lewis, who is another former Naval officer and an Iraq and East Timor veteran. He was Director of the Darwin Military Museum from 2009 to 2014. Tom is a prolific author with over 20 books on military and naval history to his name, including a biography on Teddy Sheehan VC, which won last year's Commodore Sam Bateman Book Prize. Finally, I am joined by Lieutenant Commander Desmond Woods, who has served in the British, New Zealand and Australian Armed Forces and is currently serving as the Royal Australian's Navy's Bereavement Liaison Officer. Desmond has lectured extensively and given papers on a range of Australian naval history topics. Thank you all for joining me. First off, let's set the scene. Mark Bailey, what was the state of the war in the Indo-Pacific in February 1942? Well, the state of the war is relatively disastrous. The context of the loss of HMAS Yarra was really that of the, is within that of the greatest disaster in British imperial history, the collapse of the empire in Asia and Southeast Asia. With it went the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia and the empire the Americans had won from the Spain in 1898. Now, it had long been a British priority to keep anybody's main fleet units out of the Indian Ocean. This was the demographic heartland of the British Empire. Obviously, its industrial heartland was in the North Atlantic. But the point was to keep them away from the trade. Normally, there were 800 ships afloat with about £200 million worth of cargo at sea in that ocean at any one time, and it was all unescorted. The subcontext is the fall of Singapore and the collapse of the British position there. There's relatively little written about the desperate last-minute efforts to flee Singapore. Perhaps the best book on the subject is Lieutenant Geoffrey Brooks' Singapore's Dunkirk, published in 89. Brooks survived the sinking of the battleship Prince of Wales on the 10th of December, and he and a number of shipmates escaped in the river steamer Kung Wo itself, a vessel which had fled from the Chinese coast. The final stages of this immense Japanese campaign in 1942 is really not well researched in some areas. The British were reinforcing Singapore until shortly before the surrender and Yarra, as we'll find out, was heavily involved in those reinforcement efforts. The same was true of the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia. There was also a policy of keeping maritime trade going as long as humanly possible for the Dutch East Indies provided critical strategic materials, especially oil. Now the Japanese knew this 
and they knew that the waters of the archipelago teemed with Allied shipping, which evacuated ahead of them as they advanced. There had been a series of surges of refugee shipping as each major area fell to the Japanese. The very last surge was from Java, and the last part of that focused on the, on the southern port of Chilichap, on the southern coast of Java. The Japanese knew they'd have to sweep up this shipping as Java fell. They, didn't, they did this not only to deny the ships to the Allies, but also to capture as many of them as possible. It's really worth noting that between 1st of January 1942 and the final fall of Java in March, the Japanese captured 87 Allied merchant ships, just under a quarter of a million gross registered tonnes. Among the forces gathered for that task was Cruiser Division 4, under the command of Rear Admiral Kondo. He was a highly proficient and professional officer, three heavy cruisers, and he also had a pair of destroyers from Destroyer Division 4 attached to him. And his job was to hunt for the shipping escaping from Java. I won't go into all of the details of that, because that would make the podcast very long. But let us suffice to say that he, he had tremendous success. He caught six freighters, three of which he captured and which saw service in the Japan, with the Japanese Merchant Marine, a tanker, two destroyers, the American Pillsbury and the British Stronghold, one sloop, Yarra, a fr- herself a frigate, a US Navy gunboat from which there were no survivors, one auxiliary minesweeper, a motor minesweeper and a depot ship. So this was a, a significant and important sweep and had great success for the Japanese. So this sounds like the Japanese Navy at their zenith and marching southward and, and just basically controlling the, the region. Yes, well, they had, they had swept Allied sea power from the South China Sea first. There was not much there. The American forces in the Philippines were forced to flee ahead of them. The final battle, uh, which saw the demise of Allied sea power, was the Battle of the Java Sea, which had occurred shortly before the fall of Java. But the great prize was Java. Uh, it had immense strategic importance, a vast amount of resources, and all of the oil, of course, up to the north in places like Borneo. Desmond Woods. As I mentioned, we covered Yarra's earlier exploits last year. But can you briefly, for those who have not heard that episode, tell us something of Yarra and her activities up to early February 1942? Yes, well, Yarra was a sloop of war, uh, built in 1936 at Cockatoo Dockyard. A sloop, for those unfamiliar with the term, was a vessel that is... Uh, smaller than a frigate, but probably larger than a little corvette. Corvettes were the smallest warships that uh, could reasonably be sent into open ocean. A sloop was bigger than that, but certainly was still not a major vessel by any manner of means, carrying three four-inch guns uh, initially and later equipped with anti-aircraft armoured as well. Uh, She'd had a very eventful war uh, prior to the episode that we're going to be talking about, uh, and I won't cover off on all that happened in Iraq and Iran. You can go to the podcast on that. But after that was over, she spent time on the uh, Spud Run, the ferry run to Tobruk. And for those unfamiliar with it, Australian and Commonwealth forces were surrounded at Tobruk, only open to the sea uh, for reinforcement. And many RAN ships uh, did the run nightly from Alexandria to Tobruk carrying in supplies and potatoes, hence the term the spud run, and carrying out the wounded, taking in reinforcements. And uh, she was engaged in that activity in December of 1941 when Pearl Harbor happened. That was on the 7th of December. By the 16th of December, all RAN ships essentially in the Mediterranean uh, that were under uh, Naval Board Command uh, through the Admiralty were ordered to withdraw from the Mediterranean and head 
back towards Australia. And that's exactly what um, Yarra did under the command of um, Lieutenant Commander Arch Harrington, later Vice Admiral Harrington. Tom Lewis. On 11 February 1942 at Batavia, Commander Arch Harrington handed over command of Yarra to Lieutenant Commander Robert Rankin. Why was that happening then? And tell us something of the new captain. Well, Harrington was, if you like, um, up and out. Um, he was uh, destined for greater things, as Des has said. Uh, Rankin was his replacement. The odd thing I have always found about Rankin is that um, he uh, wasn't what you might call a fighting warship captain. Uh, Funnily enough, though, at the beginning of the war, he had been deployed to the Mediterranean uh, because we were very much enmeshed with the Royal Navy, our parent navy. Uh, he'd carried out uh, admirable duties there. He'd started off as a Royal Australian Naval graduate and he'd, uh, his specialisation, so sailors have uh, categories, officers have branches, he was a surveyor. Uh, so um, performing this invaluable but quiet and quite often peaceful work in uh, waters that need surveying and uh, don't we all need those waters properly charted as mariners. But uh, when the war starts, um, he's... Uh, sent off to the Mediterranean, where he did perform invaluable service, um, generally as uh, a first lieutenant exo of uh, various ships, um, depot ships quite often, uh, that had an invaluable role of uh, supplying other vessels. He, um, by that time, was married back in Australia, and um, he had um, fathered his, uh, well, he was about to father his little girl. Um, he went off to war, and um, he never saw his uh, little girl born, and it wasn't until a couple of years later that he's actually back in Australia. And I suppose that's a bit hard for modern audiences to think about. But obviously, you're going through what is developing into a proper world war. There are lots of enemy around who will shoot uh, at various um, modes of transport. And in those days, you don't have that quick and easy option of airliner transport as we know today. So Rankin had uh, never seen his um, family uh, until he came back to Australia in uh, 41. And he was actually given a surveying job, if I remember rightly. It was a, a fairly um, urgent piece of surveying that needed to be done around Sydney. And then uh, from what I gather, and uh, the records are a bit thin, to his surprise, he's told that you are now going to be commanding HMAS Yarra. And uh, he makes his way uh, to this, as uh, the previous speakers have alluded to, uh, this uh, part of the world that's becoming increasingly dangerous to be in. And he meets up with Yarra and takes over her command. Uh, for me, of course, a lot of my uh, time has been um, tied up with uh, the attacks on uh, Darwin, uh, which happened on the 19th of February. And of course, Febru uh, Singapore fell on the 15th of February. So it's um, an increasingly bloody part of the world in which uh, Rankin finds himself. Desmond Woods, would you like to add to that? <laughs> well, I was just going to make the point that um, in a very small navy, uh, such as we had in those days, we didn't have the luxury that the Royal Navy had of having people who could stay in their branches. Uh, a competent, well-trained seaman officer who could take command of a vessel w was a rare resource. Mm. And Tom's point is absolutely well made that had it not been for the war, he would probably have continued in that hydrographic specialisation as our modern officers do who choose to go that way. But in a time of emergency like that, anyone who was competent, uh, trusted and clearly one of ours, uh, was put in command of a, of a minor vessel of war, which yes, is what yes, she was. very true. Mm. Mm. Desmond, can you explain what happened during the handover of Harrington to Rankin on board Yarra? Well, it's probably the most uh, extraordinary handover in the history of the RAN because um, 
Arch Harrington, after his success uh, to date, had been given a Distinguished Service Order and promoted commander. Clearly he was a man destined for higher things. Rankin was sent to join him uh, in Yarra, and they were both on board uh, when Yarra and other ships were escorting the very last convoy of British troops to go into Singapore. Little did anyone know that at the same time the British were closing off the Malayan campaign, blowing up the causeway into Singapore and retreating onto the island, and these new green troops were about to be put ashore there. The Japanese knew they were coming. It was a daylight convoy, which was unusual and unwise, and one of the many ships coming in was a big troop ship converted passenger liner called the Empress of Asia, 18,000 tonnes, a big ship. Yarra, Bendigo and Warrigo were the three RAN ships doing the escort work. The Japanese found the Empress of Asia and accurately bombed her. A fire was started which raged amidships. Only the aft end of the ship and the bow were clear of fire. Yarra, under Arch Harrington's command, with Rankin working hard on the upper deck, put his bow onto the Empress of Asia's stern, making sure to keep his propellers clear so he could withdraw if he needed to. Uh, they put Kali floats in the water, they put boats over the side, and this little sloop of war picked 1,805 British soldiers off that ship. Absolutely extraordinary number of men to be on a little sloop. And in fact, when they withdrew, Arch Harrington said, he was getting somewhat concerned for the stability of his ship and ordered everyone to sit so that they couldn't move around and literally capsize the vessel. Uh, Bendigo and Warrigo did a good job. They went in and picked uh, the master of the ship and his um, second-in-command off the bow. And so a very, I think about 30 men lost their lives in the Empress of Asia, and 1,805 came off uh, initially in Yarra and then were transferred around, and they all went into Singapore. And, of course, we have to suppose that many of those men would later have lost their lives in captivity, but the point is that none of them were incinerated in the Empress of Asia. So that was a, a huge uh, piece of work done by Yarra. Um, Arch Harrington singled out two people for on board, particularly for their work that day on the 3rd of February. One was Robert Rankin, whom he wrote in his after-action reported extremely well, and the other was a young fellow called Ronald Taylor, one of his gunners, whom he promoted to acting leading seaman. And we'll hear more of him later. So it sounds like Robert Rankin really did assume the hot seat. He comes in, he takes Absolutely. command of his first warship. Yes, and in action. Yes. That, that's remarkable. Mark Bailey. On 27 February 1942, orders were issued to clear all remaining British auxiliary craft from Batavia. What was Yarra's tasking? Yarra was in the unfortunate position of being ordered along with uh, the Indian sloop Jumna and HMAS Wollongong to escort the remaining shipping from Batavia on the north coast of Java through the Sunda Strait to the south coast and there to await further orders. I say unfortunate because there was no time to do all of the normal briefings of masters of the ships. It was literally a case of we're leaving in an hour, follow us. And there are all sorts of incidents which occurred there. One tanker ran aground. Another one was either mined or torpedoed. She was able to still steam, but Wollongong was detached to escort her. And 11 o'clock on the 2nd of March, they arrived in the vicinity of, of Chilichap. Now, Commodore Collins, REN, was ashore, and he ordered them 
not to enter the port at all, but to immediately make for Fremantle. And he ordered Jumna, which was an Indian vessel, to make for Colombo. What drove this was that the British already knew that very powerful Japanese forces were already active south of the island chain. This was a century-old nightmare, a strategic nightmare for the Japanese, because it meant that there was no fleet, the whole basis of the, the old Singapore strategy in the 20s and 30s. It was a trade protection strategy. It was to keep Japanese main forces away from the essential imperial trades in the Indian Ocean. Well, that was gone now. So Yarrow was now in the Rankin and, and his crew were now in the extremely unfortunate position of having to pass through an area where very powerful Japanese forces were known to be active. And this was a convoy that couldn't do more than about 10 knots uh, sustained over a period of time. Um, Cruiser, Cruiser Division 4 under Rear Admiral Kondo, uh, um, these were 32-knot ships and they were big, powerful, heavy cruisers, Otago, Maya and Takao. And they went on to have a, a very um, uh, interesting war and have, uh, caused a lot of damage to the Allied cause. This was their, their second um, action, so to speak, uh, and the, the first one of that cruiser division south of the island chains. Desmond Woods. What did Robert Rankin decide to do then with his convoy? Well, Robert Rankin, on the morning uh, of the, uh, the action, um, was steaming south, his men on board, were looking forward in a few days' time to being safely in Fremantle, uh, and uh, spirits were high. Um, and then suddenly, the action station bells clanged on board because um, smoke had been spotted on the horizon, and it was fairly obvious what was about to happen. Now, Rankin had a choice. He could have laid smoke and attempted to escape with the other ships that were under his command, um, that was a choice. It wasn't one that any naval officer of his generation would have done without a profound sense of shame because officers of that generation knew what was expected of them. Um, he did what was required of him, which was to make smoke, order his little convoy to scatter, and then put his helm over and head towards these massive assailants that Mark has just been speaking of, knowing full well that he could do no more than delay the inevitable. Rankin's decision to turn and, and face the overwhelming enemy force must go down as among the finest in RAN history and, and, and it has a, its rightful place in, in Australian history. Tom Lewis, in this dire situation, what options were available to Rankin and what did he choose to do? Well, simply put, uh, you can run together, if you like, uh, four vessels obviously turn away from the enemy and, and make best speed as you can. Uh, it's a fairly useless idea because um, you're limited to the slowest vessel that you've got, which is probably about 10 knots in this particular case. Uh, and um, the Japanese are much faster than you, three times faster. Um, so they're going to catch you and, and kill you. Um, you could, of course, um, scatter to different points of the compass um, and uh, another option is that you can order the convoy to scatter and then you can do what, unfortunately, a warship commander often has to do. You place yourself in the way and see if you can delay matters so much that hopefully your convoy could escape. If, if weather, for example, had been on their side, that's not 
a bad idea. Um, however, this is in the early morning. It's it's a lovely day, and <laughs> there's nowhere to be to be hiding. There's no rain clouds or so on that you can make for. You could also make smoke, um, and that's what actually Yarra did. And the smoke um, that you're making deliberately from your, um, from your from your funnels hopefully will provide a, a bit of a cloud that you can um, disguise yourself in. So. Rankin does all of these things. Um, he, he gives the order to, to scatter, and I will make myself um, the target, if you like. I will charge the enemy. So, as they quite often say on the sporting field, turn and face. Um, so that's what he did, very, very bravely indeed, and make for the enemy and see if you can hit them. But as I think we've already alluded to, um, the weight of shell that is available to Yarra is minuscule by comparison with what the three cruisers and two destroyers have. And, and these, the Japanese, have aircraft as well. They can correct the fall of shot. Um, so Yarra makes for the enemy. She's hit early on in the piece. It seems that Rankin was killed early on um, when a salvo hit the bridge. Yet they still try and do what they can. They are attacking and uh, they're very quickly overwhelmed. One can only wonder what was going through the men of Yarra's minds as they turned and faced the enemy. Desmond Woods. There were other acts of bravery. One notable was leading seaman Ron Buck Taylor. Can you tell us of his actions? Yes. Uh, Taylor was a captain of one of the four-inch guns, and he got the order, along with everyone else, to abandon ship because there was no point in remaining on board. Uh, and he we are told, made sure that everybody else from his gun left and got into whatever was available, flotation devices. And then he returned or stayed with his gun. Um, and then he continued to do the work of his entire gun's crew, which means loading, aiming, traversing, firing and clearing his gun. Extraordinary thing to attempt to do anyway. And he continued to aim at, without much hope of hitting, uh, the cruisers and destroyers that were now circling Yarra, and he kept firing. Um, now, we know this. This isn't just supposition, because there is a quote from the men of the uh, destroyer HMS Stronghold, who were prisoners on board the Maya. And they write later, we were taken on deck and shown, as they tried to impress us, the might of the Japanese Navy. The Yarra was the only ship left to float, and we could see flames and a great deal of smoke. The two destroyers were circling Yarra, which appeared stationary and were pouring fire into her. She was still firing back, as we could see odd gun flashes. The three cruisers then formed line ahead and steamed away from the scene. The last we saw of Yarra was a high column of smoke, but we were vividly impressed by her fight. Well, the odd gun flashes from a ship that is doomed sinking and on fire is Ron Taylor. No question about it. That's the only person who could have been firing back. And so he goes down with the ship, as does his captain, in the most heroic of circumstances, doing his utmost to give a good account of his ship to the end. If ever a little ship died fighting, Yarra did. Absolutely remarkable. Goosebumps. Mark Bailey, as Desmond has just spoken about, Yarra's heroic defence of the convoy was being witnessed by captured British seamen on the Japanese cruiser Maya. Can you elaborate on this at all? Yes, there were a few merchant seamen, uh, British, um, Netherlands, Dutch East Indies and Dutch, on board these ships as well. Now, it, the question sometimes asked as to why the Japanese didn't pick up many of the survivors, and the answer was they had a job to do and they themselves were in dangerous waters. 
So they did pick up some survivors where it was convenient, where they saw them, but most were abandoned in the water. Now, the merchant seamen knew this, and later they spoke of how they understood that this was uh, not deliberate cruelty on the part of the Japanese. That's quite a remarkable thing to think about when they get to the camps, of course, and they are subject to an immense amount of deliberate cruelty. But the the merchant seamen there really just confirmed what um, the, the survivors of the stronghold had said. And this was a good thing because this spread through the camps. So had there been no survivors from the Yarra at all, we would still have known the story. And this, for example, is illustrated by the sole survivor who died in the camps of the US Navy gunboat Asheville. Um, the only reason that anything was known about the fate of his ship, which otherwise would have vanished like the Edsel did, um, was from stories he told of how that ship was caught and sunk by this same squadron. And that's how the legends grow. Tom Lewis, what was the fate of these merchantmen? Uh, very bad in a few words. Um, one of the uh, float planes actually dive-bombed um, the minesweeper. It was already on fire. Um, and uh, the crew abandoned ship. Two were killed, 14 survived. Um, Ankin was the biggest target, um, attracted a lot of gunfire and probably manned by her original Chinese crew. Um, the records are very, very sketchy, of course, because a lot goes to the bottom with the ships. But... Um, uh, had no armour plating, of course. Um, it looks like uh, 260 men, uh, that includes her crew, were later listed as missing, presumed killed aboard that ship. Um, and probably most of them perished in the initial salvos, but um, 57 managed to take to the life rafts before the ship sank. Uh, the tanker, uh, Frankol, she didn't fare any better. Um, she was um, quickly hit and uh, sunk, and um, she had about 39 people aboard, but they, she may have taken up what they call a defensive um, merchant uh, crew aboard, um, and uh, they probably went down with it. Um, it looks like most of their crew got off, but in short order, all three are sunk, and uh, that's the end of the convoy. Desmond Woods, and what of the Yarra survivors? Well, uh, there were a lot of men in the water at this time. Um, about 2pm on the 7th, um, of March, um, there were some men picked up by the Dutch steamer Timanjok, and they were still drifting around. And then there were the survivors of, of Yarra. They were now heavily reduced by death from the original 34 down to 13. Um, they had the most improbable and extraordinary rescue of them all. The Dutch submarine K-11 spotted them and came to their rescue. Now, that's quite a, a remarkable that a submarine should attempt to rescue uh, the survivors of a warship under those circumstances. They did. Um, there were only 13 of them left because they died from thirst, from um, exhaustion, from wounds. Um, and they were deeply impressed by the conduct of these Dutch rescuers. They wrote, Our wounded were tended, we were given clothes and every attention possible, and the kindness and hospitality of the Dutch was beyond all praise. Uh, and so that's, that's how they got back to Australia. And I understand that the survivors were in quite a state when they were picked up by the submarine, so oh, it was yes. very timely. Uh, indeed. I, it, it's a, it was a matter of hours before the, the last of the 13 would have died uh, and we'd have heard no more of them. And, of course, those men go on to form the basis of the post-war Yarra Association, which is still extant and which still has descendants uh, who keep up the memory of, of those men and the ship. Fantastic. Certainly a ship with a proud tradition. Mark Bailey, 
Was this tragedy with Yarra and her convoys repeated elsewhere in the withdrawal from oh, Batavia? Oh, yes, it was repeated east, south, north and west. And as mentioned earlier, this was part of the context, it's part of the whole cycle of this. This is not new to the Japanese. They started sweeping up Allied merchant shipping, which was fleeing from Hong Kong on the, on, before the war began. And they, they knew what they were doing, and not much really did escape from Batavia. Some did. Uh, famously, the little Dutch minesweeper Abraham Kringensen escaped by disguising herself with foliage and stuff and creeping in through the shallows along the island chain. But out there in the south, um, the 22nd Air Flotilla had based a big number of reconnaissance aircraft on Bali and they were sweeping up everything. They had extremely good coverage right up to the Australian coastline and probably about 350 to 400 miles off, uh, south of Java out towards the Sunda Strait and South. And of course, you've also got aircraft based in Palembang at the uh, the big oil refinery at the, uh, near, near, near the city there, which the Japanese had captured by air assault earlier in the war, and they were doing the same thing. So no, not much survived out of what tried to flee from Java. That last surge, the Japanese had got really good at uh, finding, fixing and capturing or sinking these ships, and they were actually aiming to capture as many as possible because they knew they were short of their own tonnage. And as mentioned, they, during this phase, they captured 87 Allied merchant ships. So it's fairly safe to say that Yara and her convoy were, were up against They it. had very little chance of escape. Um, had they been a fast convoy, maybe. Um, and if they'd headed out towards, oh, along the southern coast of Sumatra. Uh, but there were Japanese forces operating out of the northern part of the Malacca Strait. Uh, they were starting to build plans to send armed merchant cruisers, the Kokomaru, Kokomaru, for example, deep into in on deep raids into the Indian Ocean, and they did a lot of this raiding. Um, not a great deal of it is very well researched. And it might be worth um, sweeping up uh, what was happening there with the, the broader picture of um, Japanese Navy settling down in what they've now conquered in what's now Timor, Indonesia and so on, to regularly attack Australia for the next two years. Um, strangely enough, the Japanese Navy do all, all of the air raids on Australia from land bases after this. Um, they only attack with their carriers once and there was only one Japanese Army air raid on Australia. So they'd they come south, they'd swept all before them, including Yarra, and now they're settling down to give Australia a really hard time. Uh, and the other action, of course, that's about to happen is the Japanese carriers going into the Indian Ocean and uh, heading for Colombo and Ceylon, Sri Lanka. And there they succeed in sinking the British uh, carrier Hermes and HMAS Vampire, her escort. Uh, and uh, the survivors of that are only rescued by the hospital ship Vita, which comes out of Colombo and picks them up. Otherwise, there would have been no survivors. Shortly thereafter, uh, the carriers take out two British cruisers, heavy cruisers, Cornwall and Dorsetshire, uh, which are um, both easy victims for air attack. So, you know, the whole scene is fluid and dangerous, uh, and there's an enormous amount going on, much of which isn't fully understood at the time, but the Japanese are doing a very good job. Yes, and this is what happens when main force units get into your rear areas. The April raids on Ceylon, that was the, Jap that was the Japanese varsity, as the Americans would term it. That was the first air fleet, and they pretty much slaughtered all of the merchant shipping in the Bay of Bengal. This was a major thing. But they're also so good. Uh, <laughs> I think what uh, impressed 
the Australians and the British eventually, when they were forced to realise the Japanese were so terrifically good. They were brave, they were, uh, they were well equipped, they knew what they were doing and they swept all before them. They'd gone out to get an empire and now they got it. At the Battle of the Java Sea, torpedoes were being fired by surface warships, the long-lanced Japanese torpedo, with such accuracy and speed, uh, unlike anything that the Allies had at that time, that the supposition was that there must be Japanese submarines in the area, because what else could be providing this tremendous level of uh, torpedo attack? Um, their kit was good. It was underestimated. Probably the most important strategic thing the Japanese had done between the wars and this is reflected in, this, in the destruction of Force Z, was they had built an ultra-long-range strike force of medium bombers. Now, when, the, when Admiral Phillips and Captain Leach uh, aboard Prince of Wales and Repulse saw the Japanese torpedo attacks, they, they record they could not actually believe their eyes because these were medium bombers that were dropping torpedoes from 300 to 400 feet in excess of 200 knots. These same crews were also capable of very accurate level bombing from medium altitudes against manoeuvring targets at sea. The world had literally seen nothing like it. And the great rampage of the first air fleet, the Kido Batai, from Pearl Harbour right through to the Bay of Bengal has no precedent in history up to that point. Churchill made the point when Colombo was uh, considered vulnerable that this was one of the very worst moments of the war because simultaneously the, uh, uh, the Wehrmacht was on the assault in Russia and every expectation was that they were going to come down into the Middle East. The idea that you would lose both the Middle East to the Wehrmacht and uh, Colombo to the Japanese was sort of creating a ring of, of steel around that whole perimeter of the world. Uh, it didn't happen. But that was a strategic risk. It's sort of, um, I think, 1942 is the darkest year Absolutely. for Australia and in probably our history. And the early part of 1942 was the worst. It's nearly the year that we went out. Yeah. Uh, ship after ship and force mm. after force is being defeated mm. and crushed. And mm. the Japanese are seemingly unstoppable. Yep. With our panel having touched on some of these issues, I, I do commend listeners to earlier episodes of this Naval History podcast series on the Battle of Java Sea and the Battle of Sunda Strait. In March 2013, the Governor-General, Quentin Bryce, announced that a unit citation for gallantry would be retroactively awarded to Yarra and her men. The unit citation was accepted by the Chief of Navy in the company of the minehunter Yarra on the River Yarra at Port Melbourne on 4 March 2014, the anniversary of the sloop Yarra's loss. Finally, can I ask the panel for your final thoughts on HMAS Yarra's heroic defence of her convoy? Mark Bailey, I'll answer first, I guess. We, we really need to place these within contexts, and the loss of the Yarra was part of the greatest disaster uh, in the British Empire's military history, and in fact the greatest disaster in Australia's military, military history as well, the collapse of the Allied position in Asia. And, uh, yeah, following on from what Mark says, it's so easy, I think, for Yarra's final stand uh, to be lost in that great big picture because it is so huge. But here is um, uh, a ship commander, Robert Rankin, and her ship's company. Uh, in fact, even the, the gunners on, on the merchant ships all doing what they should have done uh, and dying in defence of their duty. Um, something that I think, um, despite that vast context, we should never forget. I think that's a very good point you just made there, Tom. Yarra was not the only ship fighting back. There were defensively armed merchant ships 
which had RAN gunners attached to them, and they were firing back as well, equally hopelessly. But the point is, this is the gold standard for conduct in war. And we hope we're never going to have to place people in these dreadful conditions again. Uh, we can't know that. We can only hope that that's the case. But when we train our young people, both sailors and officers, Taylor and Rankin are cited as examples of what you might have to do. And it's been done before. No one wants to see it happen again. But that's why you joined. That at the push comes to shove... The circumstances arise where you have to show a measure of self-sacrifice and courage in defense of others. That's your duty. It doesn't come easy, but it's still what needs to be done. And I have not the slightest doubt that in our current Navy, there are any number of Rankins and Taylors. Fortunately, we hope, we'll never find out who they are. And I'll just leave you with a few thoughts about um, how this story has developed over the decades. For a very long time after the Second World War, these events sort of got subsumed into the general story of the war and there was nothing particular picked out except among those who knew the story of the families. Now, the unit citation for gallantry, which Mark mentioned, was a tremendous thing to do because it brought together the descendants of the men who lost their lives and those who had survived and subsequently died. Uh, and I was the MC for the event. We were all there. The Governor-General made the award um, HMAS Yarra hoisted the unit citation for gallantry as she's entitled to do every 4th of March um, and uh, people who'd never met but had this extraordinary story in common that they'd heard from their fathers and grandfathers were readily exchanging their recollections and their understanding of, of what had happened and one of the people there was Patricia Rankin the baby daughter that Tom mentioned earlier on that Robert Rankin never saw. And uh, she, of course, has come to Australia many times over the years from her home in Canada. On one occasion, she came with her mother's ashes, uh, and I was privileged to be her escort officer when we scattered her mother's ashes in Jarvis Bay, where she had requested they be scattered in recollection of the fact that that's where her husband, Robert, had trained as a young officer. Sadly, that is all we have time for. My thanks to Dr. Mark Bailey, Dr. Tom Lewis, and Lieutenant Commander Desmond Woods. Today's podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales with the assistance of the university's Creative Media Unit. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us, and if you liked this episode, please let other people know of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series. Goodbye for now.